hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. The massive complex sprawls before you. It's a far cry from the provincial bathhouse you typically frequent. It's the year 240, and you and your companion are queued outside one of the four entrances to the great Caracalla Baths. You still don't quite believe it could be that big, but looking around, you see that it is. On any given day, thousands of people pass through the soaring archways of this colossal, most spectacular bathhouse in all the Roman Empire. And here you are, eager to see what the fuss is about. It'll help with that, you know, your friend says. She taps your lower back, which you didn't realize you've been pressing with your hand. It's become a habit so familiar, you don't even notice it anymore, massaging that spot just above your tailbone. Hard labor leaves a body hurting, but this has gone from occasional twinge to chronic pain. You nod at your companion, whose wealth insulates her from your lot of physical labor. But she's been generous in suggesting and bankrolling this excursion to Rome, in search of more curative waters than those where you live. And the prospect of some juicy capital gossip is equally enticing. Who knows who else will be here today? Maybe even the emperor himself. Finally, it's your turn to enter. Some pause in the courtyard to do athletics before bathing, but with this back, you make a beeline for the soothing heat of the Caldarium. Your muscles begin to unknot the second its lush heat hits you like a wall. Everywhere you look, there's marble, and magnificent frescoes swim in the hazy air. Your friend gasps and points up. You follow her gaze. The gigantic dome overhead is unlike anything you've seen before. You are more than ready to spend the entire day in this amazing place, surrounded by the great and good of the Empire, all seeking the bath's unique combination of stimulation, refreshment, and of course, the chance to shed the grime of everyday life. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. Happy New Year, everyone! And the year we're ushering out finally, rest in peace, or maybe just F you 2020. Anyway, who's ready to start the year off with a good old fashioned relaxing Roman rubdown? Today, we welcome returning guest Tim Moeller to lead us through all the delightful distractions of an ancient Roman bathhouse. From looping up for massages, poolside dining, shopping, politicking, and just good old public posturing, the Roman bathhouses were central hubs of personal and cultural as well as economic exchange. They were dim, dank, but discreet venues where people from all walks of life could mix and mingle, dropping the cares of everyday life along with their togs. So grab that bikini or speedo and let's head in for a well-deserved day of rest and relaxation, ancient Roman style. I am really excited for this because I could use some pampering right about now. I'm done with lockdown. Tim Moeller earned a master's degree in African studies from Oxford University and a master's degree in ancient history and classical archaeology from the University of Edinburgh. He mentors international students and leads educational trips to cities across the UK. He's a guide for the Royal Yacht Britannia Museum and at the Roman Baths in Bath, England making him just the chap for today's topic. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. It's a treat, Karen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, at first, before we launch into the, into the pool, um, give us a little context, please, for our conversation. Where in the world are we focusing and what time period, first of all? So today we are discussing the bathhouses of Imperial Rome, not only in Rome, but stretching right away across the Roman Empire, 
from the province of Britannia, modern day Britain, right the way over to the east of the empire into Turkey. Roman bathhouses are found really wherever there is Roman settlement and even in, in some instances beyond the Roman frontier as well. Now in terms of the imperial period, we're talking from the reign of the Emperor Augustus, just before the birth of Jesus. Augustus comes to the throne, if you like, uh, in 27 BC, although this is when he restores the Republic, most confusingly, but this is when his reign as an emperor is traditionally dated from as the first Roman emperor. From Augustus, we're talking then right the way through to the end of the Roman Empire in the West, sort of about four, 500 AD. So a large period of time spanning across all of Europe and touching parts of Asia and Africa as well. Okay, that's, that's a lot of bathing. So how and why did the Roman bathhouse tradition emerge in the form that it did when it did? Well, we're dealing with the fundamental necessity uh, for human beings to keep themselves spelling nice. Um, when we read accounts from Seneca in Republican Rome, people quite often would just wash their arms and legs. But the actual business of cleaning their bodies, their, their torsos, their hair, was left on a much more ad hoc basis. However, the Romans also stole uh, quite a bit of, of technological advancement from the Greeks. They brought the bathtub over from Macedonia in what, the, the, the third, the second century BC. And by the first century AD, you discover that actually you can start to build great monumental panes of glass, which allow you to have huge, great big windows, uh, which uh, one of the things that we associate with the Roman bathhouse, they are light, they are airy spaces, uh, fit for people to go and sit in, catch the sun, waft around in your toga, uh, and enjoy a very relaxed afternoon out at, at the great spa house. Um, so the bathhouse evolves from a very functional place where you go purely to go and scrub yourself down uh, to one that is a social hub for the great and good of Roman society across the empire. Wow. And so was it the only option for submerging oneself, one of these public baths? Did, did anybody have a bath in their home at this time? Now, if you were wealthy, uh, you would build a bathhouse uh, attached to your home, or if you ran a tavern, you might have a bathhouse there. But for the rank and file of Roman society, the public bathhouse was your lot. Uh, and indeed, this was maximized by those in control of, of ancient Rome, who actively encouraged people to go and use them. And they used them uh, so that then politicians themselves could go and cavort with these people, could go and buy their votes and their allegiances. Uh, so the very nature of the fact that not everyone can afford to have this sort of facility in their homes becomes a necessary part of how the Roman world functions politically. And I'm glad the American election is over. So by the time we get to the bathhouse, we won't have to argue about that with anyone. <laughs> yes. Would you imagine Donald Trump in a toga wafting around one of these institutions? Tim, there's nothing I'd rather imagine less. <laughs> so... Give us just a quick cast of characters. What are we talking about here? I mean, was this sort of a one person taking a token at the door as you walked in, or was there a whole panoply of workers at your typical Roman bathhouse? Yes, I think panoply is completely the right word for what we're talking about here. You'd have someone taking the admission fee on the door, again, as you uh, described. But then once you get inside, a cornucopia of people working away to various different tasks. You had people to go and man the cloak rooms to make sure that your cloaks weren't stolen as you were bathing. You'd have people to go and offer you a massage. Um, in certain institutions as well, there was an entire priestly class attached to the bathhouse to go and uh, subscribe to your spiritual welfare. On top of this as well, you'd find that the bathhouse was a place to go and do business. Say there would be food stalls and food sellers uh, attached to the bathhouse, some of whom would come in uh, having been invited, others would come in on a hawking basis. There might be space for you to go and gamble this institutionalized um, game of dice in, in the Roman world. Uh, as, as well as 
more high-end services offered. For example, you might find stonemasons were, were offering their wares there as well. So really the bathhouse is... Whoa, stonemasons. They didn't carve something for you on the spot, did they? Or they, they were looking to be hired. Yes, exactly. So huh. it, it, it's um, really this, this aquatic marketplace, you can imagine it. Uh, a much more fair weather uh, place to go and do business than go and hawk your wares in, in the town's uh, market square in the Agora. Uh, go to the bathhouse when people are much more relaxed and you will do a much better trade, uh, whatever your trade might be, uh, in, that, in that institution. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. Wow. Aquatic marketplace. And people more vulnerable too, right? I mean, you're not, you're not cloaked in your, in your cloak. <laughs> you're... Uh, you completely so, yes. And until uh, the early second century, there was actually no legislation as to exactly what you should go and wear in the bathhouse. So it's subscribed certainly in the provinces that uh, it was quite common to spend your time in the bathhouse completely in the nude. Uh, and I, I do fear that actually a lot of our conversation today is going to be vaguely based around nudity. <laughs> so uh, this is going to be a regular occurrence. But there are <laughs> extraordinary, um, extraordinary written evidence from various of the bathhouses um, to subscribe to this vulnerability. And although you would leave your cloak in the, the cloakroom, the apogitarium, the changing room, you might come back and you'd find that the cloak was stolen. And certainly from the Roman baths at Bath, we've got many instances of people getting so cross about this. They don't go to the local constabulary because there is no local constabulary. Instead, you get onto the gods. Um, and at Aquae Sulis, Next door to the bathhouse, you have the temple to the goddess Sulis Minerva, who lives in the spring of hot water. And this is the hot water which supplies all of the water for the bathhouse. And she lives down there because it's hot. And that's how they explain uh, why it's hot. Um, and you'd write her a letter, or you'd, you'd pay a scribe to go and write her a letter. Uh, we've got about 130. Uh, of various sorts of letters written on lead, which have been excavated from this pool, uh, of people whose cloaks have been stolen. Uh, and you would say, I, I want this person, whoever they are, if they're man or woman, slave or freedman, pagan, later we have references to the Christians, whoever has stolen my cloak, I want them punished until it is returned. Um, and you've got to imagine that this poor individual who'd had his cloak stolen, um, this might be the only cloak that he's got. So he's got to walk home through the streets, potentially you know, completely in the wow. nude. Wow. So it's like a curse tablet. It's completely a version of so. a curse tablet. I love that. Um, and of course, curse tablets, as you know, are not unique to the Romans and certainly not unique to bathhouses as well. I can certainly think of other examples of contracts written in the Greek world, you know, 500 years before we're talking. Uh, but the, there is a sufficiently high concentration of these, certainly found from the Roman baths at Bath, um, which actually are, well, they're recognised by UNESCO. They've got their own special listing on the memory of the world list for this unique Roman voice of, you know, various vices uh, which are, are coming out of, of the bathhouse, particularly in Bath, but doubtless across the entire Roman Empire. Hey, Tim, we've chosen our bathhouse. We're rocking up at the door. What do the bathhouse workers think about us coming today? And what are they worried about in terms of accommodating us? Well, one of the first things they're going to try and do is separate us. Certainly if we're visiting in the early second century, because one of the things that the Emperor Hadrian does is decide that actually bathhouses should be segregated by gender. Um, and if it's a larger bathhouse, this will mean that there are two sets of facilities, one at one end for men and the other at the following end uh, for women. Um, hopefully we've gone to a bathhouse that's, that's big enough to accommodate us both at the same time, Karen. Otherwise, I'm afraid you'll have to go in the morning when it's not as nice uh, and it's a bit cooler. And I shall get to go in the afternoon as a man when the sun is really out and I can go and stretch out on my sun lounger. Uh, and, and thoroughly sun myself and enjoy all of the services that are on offer. Um, but we've gone to a bathhouse that can accommodate us both at Thank the same goodness. time. Thank goodness. Thank you. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, which 
you know, would be not too hard to go and find in the bigger cities. Um, even in places like Bath, actually, we think that there were there was enough demand for men and women to go and bathe at the same time, but, but separately. Um, we would head straight to the apogitarium, to the changing room, after paying our entrance fee of about a quarter of a cent. That's how much we'd pay to get in. And the first people we would interact with were these cloakroom attendants um, who would agree for an extra fee to go and mind our cloaks for us. Now, if we didn't want to pay that, of course, we could just try our luck and leave it. Um, leave our cloaks in the niches unattended. If we were wealthy enough, we might try and bring our slaves with us and they could go and tend for that. Um, from there, we might go and exercise in the palaestra, in the, the gymnasium, go and work up a sweat before coming across our first uh, real members, working members of the bathhouse in the next room, in the tepidarium, which would be a room nice and warm um enough heat to start bringing up a sweat for us and in there we would come across uh, masseuses who would be wanting for an extra fee to give us a nice roman rub down um with some some fragrant oils now this is really important for the wider bathing process because there's no soap in the roman world the way we clean ourselves which despite all this lavid luxury is uh, a, a combination of heat and oil and the heat combined with the oil uh, which is applied by these masseuses will lift up all of the gunk and the sweat and the muck on our bodies and allow us to go and, and clean ourselves off but the nice reality of this is also that we get a really pleasant rub down um, from these people now this could go a number of ways, there is certainly a, a satirical tradition that uh, you know the masseuses also doubled as prostitutes um, on occasion, which obviously would be an extra source of income. It's it's a bit. Yeah, of I was going to say you probably have to pay extra for that. <laughs> yes, um, but we're dealing with a highly capitalistic society where everything is is uh, an extra service on top. Um, anyway. So, so I think a, mas a massage sounds great, but if I didn't want to plump extra for the masseuse, was there kind of a self-service oil supply to create the soap effect that I need to get clean? Um, that, this is an excellent question uh, and, and not a, a self-service oil supply, but you might, if you were feeling really desperate, go and rub yourself up against the wall <laughs> of the tepidarium. <laughs> And uh, this comes from- Like the from steam that sort of had evaporated and from other people's bodies? <laughs> completely so, yes. And, and this would be yeah. how you'd go and apply the oil as well. You'd sort of drape it down your back and then you'd, you'd writhe up and down. Um, and wow, that is a vision. Of, but the, the classical source for this is the Historia Augusta, which is sort of like heat magazine for the ancient world. It's full of <laughs> salacious stories of the Roman emperors. And the tale of the Emperor Hadrian is that he visited the baths of Agrippa. He was seen to be going, like all great emperors, to the public bathhouse. And this is a place you could go and chat with people. Uh, and you could lobby them to go and support your policies, etc. Hadrian walks in to the tepidarium at the baths of Agrippa off the campus Martius in Rome. And he sees a man doing exactly this. He's up against the back wall and he's rubbing himself up and down. And Hadrian says to him, pray, my dear sir, what are you doing? And the man says, well, you see, I, I can't quite afford for someone to rub my back for me, so I'm doing it myself. Um, and Hadrian says, oh, you poor fellow, wait there, comes back with a slave. And he says, well, here is your slave. He will rub your back for you forever and anon. Very, very nice. Um, and Hadrian goes away. The man is very pleased. Obviously, Hadrian is also very pleased as well because he's been seen to do his good scouting deed for the day. Um, the payoff to this story is that a few weeks later, he comes back to the Bards of Agrippa and word has gone around. Hadrian is here. So everyone gets rid of their masseuse in a great hurry. Oh. He walks into the Tepidarium <laughs> I know where this is and going. there is an entire wall of people. You're completely <laughs> right. 
of people rubbing their backs up and down, up against this wall, uh, thinking, ah, we'll get slaves from the emperor. This is, it's, it's very simple. You're all, you, none of you can afford this service. It's quite simple. You go and rub uh, his back and you go and rub his back and you go and rub his back and then you'll all get your backs rubbed and turn it into a nice community spirit. Um, so the people are quite cross by this, but Hadrian has been shown not to be any fool. Um, now, that sounds having, like quite a Sol Solomonic solution, actually. Yes, and I think more importantly, uh, we, we shouldn't trust the story in the slightest. As I said, this source, the Historia Augusta, is really, it's, it's heat magazine. It's full of salacious gossip. But what it does demonstrate is the importance of the bathhouse as a social institution in, in Roman society. It was a place for the emperor and the slave of the emperor. Uh, and vital that all of these components of Roman society went to the public bathhouse um, and engaged with it for the political good of the Roman Empire. Um, so it was a very pertinent question. What do you do if you can't afford it? Well, if you, you um, believe the historical Augusta, you just go and rub yourself up against a wall. We have met several of these workers at the bathhouse. So who comes next in our procession through the place and our experience of it after this masseuse who offers to basically lube us up? Uh, once we're lubed up, we go into the, the warm room, the caldarium, and there we might not instinctively run into any worker um, itself because this is a room where we go and sweat ourselves into a furor. We're still covered in all this oil after being lubed up. But this is the hot room. It's right next to these great big furnaces. And this will be uh, the place where the oil combines with the heat and it lifts off all of this gunk from your body, um, from which you take out your strigil, your, your curved scraping stick. Uh, stick is the wrong word. Your, your scraping bronze implement, I suppose, is probably the right way to go and describe it. And you'd scrape down your arms and your legs uh, and all of your body, and you'd clean yourself off like this. However, this is the part of the bathhouse where there are the most people you know, working behind the scenes, because you've got people stoking the furnaces to keep the, uh, the rooms really, really hot. Uh, they could double the temperature, the outside temperature. Um, wow, through. that's and, impressive. Uh, so you're talking with a space that's you know, 70, 80, 90 degrees Celsius. I, I couldn't quite do it in Fahrenheit off the top of my head, but perhaps we could go and work it out. That's really hot. Really, really hot. Yes, it's equivalent to uh, being in a modern steam room um, to this day. And certainly this is the centre of the, the technological revolution which takes place in bathhouses. Um, the furnace from the bathhouse uh, in Bath is probably the first example of a coal-fired furnace anywhere in, in Roman Britain, which was picked up um, whilst they were campaigning down the Foss Way to Exeter, down in the West Country. They, they came across all the uh, shallow cast mines uh, in Somerset and in, in Devon as well. So you've got people stoking uh, the furnaces. You've also got people uh, cleaning out the heating system. Um, all of this is, is heated. The entire system from which it's based is, is known as a hypercaust, which is something they borrow from the Greeks, of underfloor heating, which also eventually you can run up into the, the walls and into the ceiling as well using hollow box tiles. But you've got to find someone to go and clean this out uh, and remove all of the excess soot. So you'll find quite often that there are accounts of, of small children who are employed by the bathhouse to go and crawl underneath through these hypercourses, ensuring that the flues have no blockage to ensure that the heat is completely um, evenly distributed. Um, so like a, a swan, these graceful institutions full of, of lavish public art have actually got a lot going on underneath them, a lot of individual parts um, underneath the waters, quite literally kicking to ensure that the um, the entire show stays on the road. Yeah, that's amazing. Actually, I had no idea that um, that they had coal-fired furnaces. I just really didn't know that at all. Well, yes, and, and certainly, as I, as I mentioned, this is it's one of the first examples we have from Britain 
of there being a coal-fired furnace. Um, in, in many places, you would also have to go and heat the water up. And it's quite notable yet that in our visit to the bathhouse, we've yet to meet uh, an actual swimming pool. Um, in several of the bathhouses across the empire, we were blessed with having thermal springs, so water which is naturally hot. And so, of course, if you discover a thermal spring, what you want to go and do is build a bathhouse there. Sure. In many instances, though, for example, even in Rome or in, in Pompeii, uh, the water doesn't come naturally hot. So you've got to go and heat that up as well. And it's the same uh, individuals ensuring that these, these bathhouses are kept up to standard from early in the morning right the way through to late at night. Okay. We've gotten all sweaty. We have, I love your term, I think, sweat up a furor. It doesn't sound quite so elegant in my American accent, but uh, what's next? What do we do next? Uh, well, I enjoyed your, your line about being lubed up as well. Oh, <laughs> <I swear>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're all lubed up. We're, we're sweated to a furor. What's next in the bathhouse? Well, we scrubbed ourselves down. We scraped ourselves within an inch of our lives. We've got this nice pucker, clean red skin. We might go and chuck um, the excess bodily matter, which we've, we've removed from our skins away. But the Romans didn't do that. They were quite hygiene conscious. They'd go and put it in a bottle as you're scraping it down with your strigil. Um, and then you could in fact sell this excess bodily matter. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. If you weren't famous, who wanted your dead skin and gook? <laughs> exactly, but you, you've, you've, you've touched on it perfectly there because if you are famous, then suddenly you've got a marketable uh, product here because for so many people in the Roman world, yes, they're, they're using the public bathhouse. They might see the local governor or the local general or the rich Roman lady from down the road there, but they aren't those people. Um, so this market springs up whereby uh, you can go and buy their fragrance effectively. Uh, you can buy the, the essence of rich Roman lady. And it's this um, element of social aspiration, which you still find when you buy, say, James Bond fragrance for your father at Christmas. Uh, whilst certainly my father could never be James Bond, he's got far too bad a back these days. He certainly can't <laughs> roll around and, and shoot people left, right and centre. and doesn't uh, nearly know how to go and tie a bow tie nice enough. Uh, but he could smell like him um, if he yeah. were to buy this fragrance. And say there is another worker in the bathhouse who is there to go and pick up these, I don't know, shavings of rich Roman lady. <laughs> oh, yuck. Um, I wonder, I, shavings. I wonder how you and I would go and market ours after our, our bathhouse trip. Uh, I don't know. I, you know what? Um, let's, let's just grab a bottle each just so we're ready once we come up with our brilliant tagline, okay? <laughs> yes, excellent idea. Um, but from the caldarium, from the hot room, we are now squeaky clean and we've got rid of our excess bodily matter, the shavings of, of Tim and Karen. Uh, this is where the swimming pool comes in and we'd want to go and jump into some nice cold water uh, to finish off the actual bathing process. Um, so there'd be a plunge pool filled with icy water uh, and dare I say it, some attendants on the site as well to offer you your towel, uh, to dry you off and then to take you through should you wish to go and have a, an afternoon socialising and gossiping um, from where you might go and pick up something to eat. You might try and buy some oysters, uh, for example, particular delicacy uh, in the West Country of England. Uh, certainly at the Roman bars, we've got examples of there being oyster cellars around this, this central great bath, uh, actually on the, the bath floor, which would be a nightmare today. It sounds um, kind of messy. Completely so, yes. But bathhouses <laughs> certainly uh, are, are not hygienic places. The water is never changed except for the natural flow of it coming in and out. There isn't any chlorine. Uh, and you're swilling around with you know, 40, 50, 60 other people um, sharing this same water as well. So it's, it's and, and who knows how careful they were with their strigil. 
<laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Those oysters were delicious. I never had oysters in the bathtub before. That that was a great thing, I, I guess. Um, so I'm really enjoying the bath. What, what else can we do here, Tim? We might reevaluate the reasons for coming to the bathhouse, particularly if it's not our local bathhouse. Perhaps we've come uh, on a pilgrimage to this town. Perhaps you know, we're not particularly well at the moment. We've got arthritis or rheumatism or something like this. And we could go in and pay a little fee extra and we could go into the healing baths. We could go into the, the balneum, effectively like a Roman jacuzzi full of hot, bubbly water. And we could oh, go and sit. wonderful. Yes, please. Yes, I, I think it's exactly the ticket for a, a dreary November evening, um, like the one I'm certainly looking out on at, at the moment. Um, and... These were places which were walled off from the general bathhouse. And again, this emphasizes the, the social exclusivity of this environment. Um, it would be uh, a place, of course, that you'd have to go and pay an extra fee, like everything else, to go and use. Um, and rather like if you've got a jacuzzi or a hot tub in your garden today, you're either somebody or you're desperate to look like somebody <laughs> by going in the night of, of, of these spaces. Oh, so um, interesting. So it, it had that connotation even then. Yes. Uh, and certainly by the way that they are demarcated from the main bathhouse, there's always a, a very, very solid wall which separates them from the rest of the bathhouse. And you, know, you might have a grand entrance to go and walk in and out of and hope that you've caught the eye of the, um, the other people as you're swilling around. And dare I say it, the, the bathhouse employees as well uh, might go and while away our time in the the balneum we could also stay over uh at the bathhouse particularly if there's a sanctuary to asclepius the healing god uh and we might go and consult the priest about our ailments and he would explain exactly what we need to go and do uh, at aquae sulis at bath for example there's an on-site uh harry specs who uh, in the great roman tradition would go and, and read your fortune effectively by looking at the entrails of a slaughtered animal. Um, so uh, the, the Roman gods are very much catered for uh, in these, these bathhouses uh, as well, and all of the employees which are attached to them too. Wow, I, so this is seriously a one-stop shop to take care of everything from basic hygiene to um, really aspirational behavior to medicinal cures completely so yes um i think one-stop shop is is probably the best way to go and and describe them really they are a place where you can feel extremely vulnerable you come with uh, a great ailment maybe you've, you've got a common cold or something like that um and you could read it that you are exploited for this vulnerability and people make their daily living off of uh, you coming to this bathhouse, whether that's because they've, they've decided to go and steal your cloak, whether that's because they've decided to go and fleece you on the Roman dice, whether that's because they've decided to flog you some oysters or go and build for you a, a stone monument, or whether that's because they've uh, said that you will get healing if you, you pay enough money to the gods. Um, this is a, it's an extremely commercial um, environment, which if read in a certain way, pries upon uh, people's vulnerabilities and their desire for comfort. Yeah. And so this is just a, a cast of, of dozens, if not hundreds, for a, a very large bathhouse, it sounds like. So what kind of work schedule would, would these bathhouse workers have? Was this a full-time gig? And, um, you know, did they live on site? I mean, how was this um, huge aquatic marketplace, as you put it, kept going for long hours day after day? Yes, and, and like all situations of upstairs, downstairs, most of the work has gone into the people coming to use the bathhouse. And this is what is so tantalizing, because we have this understanding that they are, uh, there are hundreds of people squirreling away in the background from very early in the morning, lighting the fires for the furnaces, cleaning out the, uh, the various bathhouse rooms. 
working into the late evening, uh, you know, late into the night, almost, you know, some of them are almost like a 24 hour supermarket. So it would be likely that if you were a bathhouse employee, you would probably live very, very close to uh, the bathhouse in order to facilitate this, this daily work. So all of this money changing hands, um, I can't imagine there wasn't somebody who was financially benefiting uh, perhaps more than the bathhouse workers? How, how did that work? Bathhouses were either speculated privately, um, built by local individuals uh, who invariably got to go and put their name over the front door and all of the, the kudos that came with that, or they were sponsored imperially by uh, the, the Roman emperor or his, his uh, near associates. Either way, they came under the government of the, the local town who would let it out uh, as a, a leasehold to a manager who paid a daily fee, uh, a sort of a, a tax to the town for having uh, the run of the baths. But then every other service, uh, including the entrance fee, including all of the, uh, the, the various add-ons would flow, we think, into uh, this man's coffers, uh, making him you know, an incredibly wealthy member of the local community. Oh, it sounds like it. And, and so how about the workers themselves? Were they well paid? Uh, invariably, not particularly. Uh, you might be fortunate to earn, say, a couple of sesterces, um a day. Uh, we, again, we've got more evidence or more of a clue into the working conditions and the work of pay when we look at how the bathhouses are actually built. Um, because so many of the box tiles and the uh, stonework pieces have all got a mason's mark attached to them. And there's been some really interesting studies that have picked out individual hands from uh, the box tiles. Uh, and, and you can see that there are groups of you know, 10, 20 people uh, who would have been paid on a box tile by box tile basis. So if they've made 100 in a day, they might earn oh. say, 100 sesterces or whatever. Um, again, a really aggressive market economy that rewards those who uh, put in the hours, but for those who haven't been able to, uh, are very much left behind. Now, when we talk about the builders of the bathhouses, I mentioned you know, perhaps there's, there's 10, 20, maybe 30 uh, of them at a smaller site like Aquae Sullis. The Baths of Caracalla in Rome, uh, the greatest bathhouse, uh, the largest bathhouse, uh, ever constructed in the Roman world, stretching over 26 acres, built at the beginning of the 26 acres of baths? Incredible, I know, baths, what? but also, you know, the, well, the but the whole, all of, all of the paraphernalia, yeah, yes. as you've explained. Uh, but still, that is, that's impressive. Uh, it, it's colossal. Um, and even to walk around its ruins today are incredible. But an estimate uh, on the workforce that it took to build it is somewhere in the region of about 13,000. Uh, 13,000. Wow. And you could imagine if they'd all left an individual mason's mark uh, trying to work out who had built which parts of it. It would be an incredible project to go and do um, to this day. But then on top of that, of course, you, you fill your bathhouse with, with lavish art um, as well. Certainly from the Baths of Caracalla, really famous statuary, like the uh, monumental statue of uh, Hercules clutching the apples of Hesperides. Uh, which is in the, the Farinese, or from the Farinese collection in Naples now, was displayed um, in this imperial bathhouse. So uh, we get this idea that there are hundreds, thousands of people squirreling away, being paid not very much, just a sturdy here and there, for their labour, uh, underneath which there is this great magnificence um, in terms of architectural and artistic splendor. Yeah, that, and, and this makes me wonder, how, how would a couple of sesterces per day compare to the, I think you said the quarter of a cent that we would have paid to, to enter? Yes, uh, so quarter of a cent is, it's about one sixteenth of a sesterce. My, my, my Roman economics isn't my strongest point, but I think that's how they divide up. The short answer is really not very well paid at all. No. <laughs> if each individual who arrived to make use of all the services these many, many workers 
provided uh, was tallied up, um, yeah, that this this was no sort of um, even ten percent tipping threshold. <laughs> yes, right? but I think this explains why then on top each of the services are something that you have to go and pay for because the person offering them can go and make a cut um, from that. So part of their their wage, rather like in the rather more unpleasant God. side of. Okay. of the tipping culture that we see in, in various societies today it is expected that part of their salary will come from the revenue that they themselves are able to go and generate so it's the hustle it's the hustle economy yes very much so and we see this again and again in the roman world actually you, you sink or you swim uh, which i suppose is a particularly effective bathhouse metaphor i was gonna say you you got that pun down cold or hot if we're still in the tepidarium with all of these workers, um, what kind of hierarchy or you know hands-on management structure was there? I, I understand somebody owned the place and sort of controlled the purse strings and all of that, but you know, was there sort of like the equivalent of a butler? <laughs> I mean, it, it really is like a, a downstairs situation with a cast of thousands for a for a, a well-to-do house. You're completely right to go and think about the related hierarchy in here and. I think a really nice example of this actually comes from Pompeii when the bathhouses were excavated there after the eruption. Um, what was preserved in one of them was a team of, of five individuals, uh, both male and indeed female, uh, who have been interpreted as being the, the, the guardians to the bathhouse, the, the people who were overseeing all of the other employees. Oh. Um, and unfortunately, it seems like it's the middle managers who <laughs> were stuck to their posts and were wiped out by the eruption. Um, they were sort of killed out of passion for their, their, their jobs and their careers, um, or at least that's how it's sort of been romantically um, interpreted. And they would be directly accountable to the uh, manager. They'd be the people who are balancing the books. Uh, they'd be overseeing the entrance fees to the bathhouses, ensuring that the um, if it was a single sex bathhouse, uh, that the right people were coming in at the right time, say women in the morning, men in the afternoon, uh, overseeing when slaves were allowed to go and use the bathhouses, because again, slaves were encouraged to go and use the public bathhouses. Um, and there is a sufficient amount of legislation which requires uh, you know, an educated class to understand the rules of Roman bathing and to be able to enforce them um, as well. Um, although I'm never completely sure that they do enforce it as, as well as perhaps they might, uh, because despite the fact the Emperor Hadrian bans mixed bathing and insists that um, everyone must go and wear you know, effectively swimming trunks, um, you find that this legislation has to continuously be reenacted uh, throughout the later Roman world. And it's done five or six times before the Roman world um, comes to its end, um, whereby emperors, later emperors like Diocletian have to reenact these laws and remind people, no, we bathe separately and we bathe with our togs on. Um, so whether you know, standards keep slipping, um, I, I suppose not only standards uh, that, that keep slipping actually, all right, you teed this one right up for me, Tim. So let's just go straight there, cut to the jugular. What might have been going on in these bathhouses that caused Hadrian to ban co-ed and entirely nude bathing when he did? Hanky panky, Karen. Uh, that's, a, that's a highly technical term. I won't ask <laughs> you to define it for our listeners because I think we can probably work that out. But yeah, tell us, tell us as much as you can in a somewhat clean podcast. Well, the... Um, satiric writers of the, the first, second centuries are always uh, talking about women who you know, might have guests for dinner, for example, and they scurry off between courses uh, to go and keep their appointment with their masseuse in the bathhouse. And they come back uh, a bit flushed, but they come back a bit flushed because <laughs> they've been... Um, you know, they've, they've, they've been massaged. Completely <laughs> um, yes, so this is, is one of those things which um, is seen as they, they do it in the provinces. We certainly don't in Rome. We're above that sort of thing. Um, but the wonderful reality is that beneath these mists 
Um, he's still, you can just sense that there is all sorts of, of nefarious activity uh, which is taking place and, and liaisons, as well as, of course, uh, you know, crime, um, as well as petty thievery uh, and, and, and what have you, taking place um, in these, these very steamy, very dark, dank spaces. Yeah, it just seems like a recipe for it. And, and so were some of these people participating in the hanky-panky um, bathhouse workers? Or did it tend to be just secret liaisons sometimes where, you know, uh, when it was allowed for a man and a woman to be bathing at the same time, they could just sort of, you know, sneak off into a corner <laughs> somehow? Yes, well, I, I think um, that is an incredibly likely situation and one which would have been so ordinary that it, it would have been very seldom written down. Uh, the examples of, of bathhouse workers actually taking on this subsidiary role uh, is more frequent in the literature, um, particularly, as I mentioned, in the satirical literature. Certainly, uh, the masseuse was in a particularly powerful position to enact um, this sort of extra numerary activity. Um, and, and this is where uh, we have lots of written examples for um, that sort of activity taking place. What kind of gender divide can you discern from the sources for, you know, the on-the-ground workers in the bathhouse? We mentioned um, an example of a, a team in Pompeii that was essentially middle management, the, the office workers, but did women as well as men participate? Yes, um, completely so. And indeed, one of the um, consequences of, of Hadrian's legislation is that not only do the bathhouses become single sex for the bathers, but um, they also become single sex establishments by and large for the people offering these services as well. So you get female employees working in the female section of the baths and male employees in the male section um, as, as well. Were bathhouse workers full-time, as far as you can tell, or did they participate in a certain amount of subsistence, you know, whether it would be agriculture or, you know, perhaps some sort of productive activity outside the bathhouse? Um, yes, we'd imagine that they were mostly full-time employees, although I hasten to add Rome is an economy which is built upon... Uh, agrarian production. So what comes out of its fields is eventually what is in the Romans' pockets. Um, and we see this again and again and again with the corn doles to the, the plebeians of Rome, started by people like Julius Caesar in the end of the first century um, BC, because there is not enough grain in mm. the city of Rome. So many people are on the side of their very difficult daily professions would have some sort of a, a small holding or access to this small holding as a way of providing them with this subsistence um, should the state not be able to deliver. Yeah, that must have been just a, a pretty stressful schedule to maintain, actually. It sounds like they could have been kept at the bathhouse pretty close to 24-7 if managers had anything to say about it. Yes, and I, I think the uh, culture of clocking in at nine and clocking out at five uh, would have been something completely alien to many of the people uh, here in these bathhouse establishments. They're getting up extremely early in the morning to ensure that the fires are lit um, or, or dealing with late night clientele into potentially even the early hours of the morning. Um, you could be working you know, flat out for, for most of the time. And so what would attract somebody to doing this kind of work? I suppose it's, it's that position of power which you have in an incredibly intimate environment, um, working with, on a daily basis, members of the Roman elite, whether that's in the city of Rome and you're mixing with the emperor or with uh, members of their court, or whether in the provincial centres, that is the local governor or some local merchants, you're uh, in this position to have their ear um, in, in more ways than one. Um, and dare I say it, probably for a lot of these people, it's out of necessity 
as well, in that there are always jobs to be had within the bathhouse. Uh, they are a, a thriving part of the Roman world. Um, and you know, it, it just convenience of, of labor for, for these individuals as well. And were there any sort of credentials required? If we're going down the line of you know, nefarious masseuses, then presumably to be vaguely attractive would be a, a useful, not necessarily qualification, um, but strong hands, uh, strong <laughs> manly hands. Manly. <laughs> the, the lovely line um, in the Odyssey about Odysseus is that he always has manly hands, which <laughs> never fails to make me chuckle. Uh, right. that, yes. Now that means that his gloves are extra large and that's all it means. And is there any evidence that these business establishments contributed in any kind of measurable way to the ancient Roman economy? Well, lots of business was certainly done um, within the bathhouses. There are accounts of people meeting there to discuss imports and exports um, of agrarian products of things like wine, of olive oil from North Africa, right the way through uh, to uh, Britain, from Germany through to uh, Turkey um, as well. Um, so yes, they are used as this, this rather like a country club is to this day, uh, this place of soft power and influence, but you're never going to find on a contract, for example, this deal was done in the bathhouse of Agrippa um, <laughs> because that would just look sleazy. And of course, this is the nature of, the, uh, of how business was done and indeed still is done to this day. It's all uh, a bit of a, a backhanded gentleman's agreement. Does the Historia Augusta or any other sources give us any, any great scandals that were centered at a bathhouse? Uh, one that I always enjoy um, is the tale of the conception of the Emperor Augustus, uh, which is documented in Suetonius, the uh, biographer who wrote the lives of the 12 Caesars, starting with Julius Caesar. This, this conception story, this immaculate conception, as we can almost imagine it, is one which is associated with a variety of different Greco-Roman figures, uh, of the first of which is Alexander the Great, um, from Plutarch's biography. But the version in, in Suetonius is lovely because Augustus is conceived after a snake crawls up his mother's dress, very naughty. Um, and the bathhouse detail comes afterwards from which she never again dared to show herself in the bathhouse. Oh, um, wow. And it just happened to be a snake. <laughs> it's delightful. And of course, it's a complete <laughs> fiction. Um, it's... A, a trope of divinity, which we see again and again and again uh, in the ancient world. But the situation of this in the bathhouse, um, and suddenly Augustus's mother's uh, acrimony never to be seen in a bathhouse again for fear, presumably, that the, the marks of the snake would be seen. Uh, it's just such a lovely detail oh, of it. gossip, which That's once great. again, yeah, puts the bathhouse right in the centre. Um, of the Roman world and its workers too, who would be the main profligators of, of gossip uh, that um, there could be had anywhere in the city. So what would a modern person's reaction be to an ancient Roman bathhouse, do you think? Uh, you know, especially someone who might be accustomed to visiting a spa now and again. I think it would really depend where this modern person were based. I think certainly many of my colleagues in Britain would be quite affronted by uh, the tenants of the Roman bathhouse, certainly by the range of facilities that were on offer there. It's much more than a swimming pool and you see much more than you uh, would see uh, in a modern swimming pool uh, today. There's a slightly different culture, of course, which exists in, in Germany and indeed in Scandinavia. Uh, and dare I say, the Roman bathhouse tradition has very much continued uh, in places like Turkey, uh, the, the, the Turkish bathhouse and the experience in the Turkish bathhouse, this dark, steamy series of rooms um, really is something akin to uh, the experience that we'd have had in the Roman bathhouse. So for, for people 
in quite a few societies today, I would suggest that actually there is a, a lot of similarity and a lot that they would recognize. Um, of course, for us, the main thing is that we have soap now. So, so many of these jobs uh, <laughs> are completely superfluous. You don't need people to go uh, and uh, apply oil to your body. Uh, you don't need people to ensure that the, the hot room is nice and hot by stoking these furnaces. Uh, you just turn on a tap, you jump into your nice bath, and you uh, put the soap on yourself and you have a jolly old splash. Um, so the, the idea of going out to the bathhouse and it being a social occasion um, is, is completely gone uh, from our Western world today. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you go to um, a gym or a spa, you, you stay as wrapped up as you can, generally speaking. You might go into the dressing room and into a private cubicle to change into your swimsuit and <laughs> in you go. And yeah, you, you really just don't actually spend a whole lot of time talking to anybody, not the people working there, nor your, your fellow visitors. No. Um, and I think this is, it's a great shame, actually. It wasn't until um, I had visited the, the public baths in, in Edinburgh, actually, of, of all places, uh, that I realised quite what a social hub bathhouses could be. And there the city council uh, have done an extraordinary job of preserving the beautiful 19th century bathhouses which were constructed uh, at the, the end of the 19th century. Um, and turning them into public spaces where uh, you find people go and in this, this wonderful classical tradition go and debate things in the saunas, uh, oh. for example, and, and talk about art and literature. Um, and I think this is, this, is not a, um, this is not an intended consequence of these restorations, but rather... Um, a, a, a beautiful byproduct for restoring this heritage because by preserving these bathhouses, you attract uh, people to want to come and use them um, and actually spend time in there and enjoy them rather than just jumping in the swimming pool and doing your 40 lengths and getting out again and running to the hilt and thinking, gosh, thank goodness I don't have to go back to the gym uh, again for a, a wee while now because I've done my penance. But making them into a, a place where people really want to be and to savour the afternoon thumbing through uh, say a paperback book in the sauna and knowing that you're going to destroy it in the process of reading it in there but it being a, a place to immerse yourself. Um, it was an incredibly special experience and say if any of our listeners have the opportunity to go and uh, experience the, the great joys of the, um, the public bathhouses in Edinburgh, um, it, it's certainly something I would recommend. Oh it sounds wonderful. And so let me ask you, would you visit an ancient Roman bathhouse if we really did have that time machine? Unequivocally, yes. I think they were a melting pot of ancient uh, culture, of ancient peoples. There is nowhere else save the theatres uh, where you are likely to come across the emperor and the slave of the emperor in one breath. And certainly in the theatre, uh, say in the Colosseum, you wouldn't get to talk to the emperor. You might see him in the distance, but you wouldn't be able to lobby him and say, tell me, Hadrian, what's going on about my drains, for example. Uh, whereas in the bathhouse, you, you've got him by the ear. And this extraordinary intimacy, I think, gives you uh, this, this real sense of how the uh, Roman Empire was governed. Uh, by a very, very loose consent. Um, and in the bathhouse, you are able to operate within this, this system. Uh, so it would be a, a real privilege, uh, despite all of the, the grime and the muck and the dank that surrounds you, and dare I say it, all of the rather nefarious activity as well, um, to go and witness it and to be part of it uh, would be a real treat and something I would, I would leap at in an instant. Oh, me too. Tim, thank you so much. This has been fantastically interesting. Taryn, it's been great fun. Thank you. 
A Roman bathhouse on the scale of Caracalla was a highly advanced, supersized blend of commerce and community, employing a small army of specialized workers and carving out a uniquely vibrant space in ancient Roman society. The need for open, airy spaces for baths led to the development of large domed structures, which had a huge and lasting impact on the evolution of classical architecture. But the social effects were perhaps even more critical. As Tim said, in ancient Roman society, there was virtually no other place that an emperor and his slave would be invited to frequent the same space. These multifaceted hubs of culture and commerce continue to give us fascinating glimpses into the lives of ancient peoples, and food for thought, as always, to how and why we live today in the ways that we do. Thanks, as always, for listening. Catch you next week. You can follow Tim Muller on Instagram at tomuller1996. You can follow the show on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries, with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And, of course, share the show with the history lovers in your life. Thanks so much for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.